All right, everybody. Welcome. Glad to have you guys here at New Life. Are you excited to be here today? I mean, come on. All right. Everybody in the first three rows is excited to be here. Uh, we'll let it We'll let it gradually, you know, make its way to the back. Almost kind of like the wave at a big sporting event, right? But it will happen more in your heart this time. Um, well, you don't have to have that awkward, like, do I stand now and put my hands up or do I not? You know what I'm talking about. So, listen, I'm glad you're here today. My name's Jeff. I'm one of the pastors on staff. It's a great honor to have you worshiping with us. If you're a guest here with us today, thanks for being here. Uh, if you're a guest with us in uh, North Platte, thanks for coming or down in the venue. We are one church in three locations right now at this exact moment. Um, what an exciting uh, opportunity it is to be able to utilize technology to have three different churches that all gather together at the same exact time. Um, now, if you don't know anything about our, um, our satellite campuses, you need to know that all of those have live worship. They actually have campus pastors, part of our pastoral staff there, and that the only thing we sync up with is just the sermon. So it's pretty fantastic that we get to have people that are in our venues that all they have to worry about is just loving people, just love people. That's what they get to do all week long, love people, disciple people, train people, um, raise up great leadership have healthy church structure, and make sure that, you know, all the ministries of the church are functioning correctly. Um, so it's a great thing, and, you know, we, we kind of do that right here from our, our main campus. And so it's great to have you guys with us. Thanks for joining us. Hey, we're uh, in this teaching series. I'm going to be preaching out of the, the book of Acts today, Acts chapter 9, if you have your Bibles with you. You're going to want to open it up to that. If you don't know where Acts is and you're new here today, then it's in the New Testament, and it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts. The other thing you can do is you can utilize our YouVersion app. If you'll go onto your app store and download YouVersion, it's a Bible app. You can click on the live feature there, and then you can search for New Life Carney. If you search for New Life in Carney, then up will come the sermon notes. You can keep those all week long. Uh, you can have the scriptures, you can have title uh, slides and different things like that are all there for you to have all week long to reflect back on today's, today's message. Uh, so go ahead and check those things out and we'll journey together. Today I'm going to talk about what it means to have a turnaround in your life. Have a turnaround. A turnaround could be a number of different things. It could be a spiritual turnaround, like where our life is, um, is being lived in such a way that is maybe there's sin in our life and we see a turnaround and we start living for God. Or maybe it's a belief that you have, a belief that's wrong. Um, about God or about this world or what God's called you to do. And there's a turnaround that needs to happen there. Uh, there could be turnarounds in people uh, from a physical sense as well, that you're in the dire need of a turnaround from a, uh, from a physical diagnosis that's happened and you need God's touch on your life. A turnaround can happen in a lot of different ways. But when I think of the word turnaround, I instantly, I instantly go back uh, to moments when I've been driving, right? And I've missed my turn. Or I was driving thinking I was going in the right direction and then I have to humble myself and I have to turn around to go back where I was going. Has anyone ever had anything like that happen to them? Is that humbling or what? Especially when you've got teenagers in the car and they just are starting to get their learner's permit. And now they think that they know exactly where to go and how to get there. And from the back seat, they're yelling it out and you're the dad, you're the driver. You think you know where you're going only to, only to find out that they were right and you were wrong. Very humbling moments. Not that I've lived that with four teenagers that I raised. 
I lived it probably every day. The worst, my, this is a side note, right? But the worst thing that ever happened to me when I was driving with my teenagers in the car was when my daughter Tiffany, who is part of our staff out in the North Platte campus, she reached up from behind me and she touches the back of my head back here and she just draws this circle and she goes, Daddy, what's that? I'm like, seriously? You mean that the bald spot back there? It's because your dad's got wisdom. Come on. Your dad's got wisdom. So I remember then these turnaround moments that you get so frustrated about, you know, trying to make these turnaround moments. And uh, so the best thing I ever did to deal with having to turn around in moments is that I bought my very first four-wheel drive, four-wheel drive vehicle. I bought a Suburban. Because when you have a, something like that and you're caught at a light and you need to turn around and there's a concrete median, you can still just go right over the top of it. And turn around and go back where you need to. You don't have to wait for the moment. You can call the moment. If you're going down a road and there's a big ditch and you got to go up to to get on the other side and you're going the wrong direction, you don't have to wait for the turnoff. You can just drive down in the median and back out on the other side and off you go. Four-wheel drive vehicle, it, uh, it really, it started to help me in big ways, all right, when it came to turn around. Direct a recommendation, I would not recommend buying your 16-year-old maybe the, the four-wheel drive unless you want them to start practicing those type of behaviors immediately. Um, so I think we've all experienced that. How many, how many of you guys have experienced this? You've been driving down the interstate, and you're, you realize you missed your cutoff, and you, want, you need to turn around. So you see that, that turnaround that's in between the median, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? And then you see the sign that says, for emergency vehicles only, right? And so none of you have ever made that a turnaround, right? No, nobody in this place ever did that. I'm, I'm pretty sure that all you guys obeyed all those laws and you never made that turnaround. Well, you know, I mean, turnarounds can be embarrassing. Turnarounds can be a little humiliating. Turnarounds can, you know, they come at times when you have to admit I was wrong. I was going the wrong direction and that's not the way I was supposed to be going. But what happens when you have to turn around a lifestyle? What happens when you have to turn around a belief? What happens when when that takes place? See, it's one thing to have to turn around physically, right? I mean, that's easy. Just find the next turn, turn it around, give it the gas, go back the direction you need. Maybe you just lost a minute, two minutes, five minutes, or whatever. But what happens when you've been living your life with a wrong belief? What happens when you've been living your life and you know that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is knocking on your heart and he's saying to you, it's time to turn around. And you're thinking to yourself, but I've been living this way for the last five years. I've been living this way ever since I can, I can imagine. Turn around now? That seems like, it feels like a flip-flop. It feels like, it feels like I would have to admit that I've been wrong this entire time. And that is true. Like one thing that we need to discover right off the bat is that all of life, all of life is one big turnaround. That's what Christianity is, by the way. Christianity is one big turnaround. It's the first turnaround where you say, I've been living my life for myself, and now I'm going to turn it around and I'm going to live for Christ. That's called salvation. But that's not the only one. That just begins a series of turnarounds that have to happen where minor things need to be changed from the way that you live to the way that God wants to live. The Bible refers to this as the word called repentance. And repentance literally means to turn around, to turn 180 degrees. I was heading to the right, now I need to head to the left. I was believing, 
a lie, and now I need to believe a truth. I was living with independence, and now I need to surrender. All of life is one big turnaround. In fact, God's heart and God's desire for you and for me is that we would experience multiple moments of turnaround in our life. That just proves the fact that God's not done dealing with your heart. When you're hearing the voice of God and he's challenging areas of your life that demand a turnaround, they demand for you to stop one thing and start doing something that's just the opposite to honor him or to align yourself with his word. Take great joy in that. That's the Holy Spirit who's dealing with our hearts. God's in the business of helping people turn around and line their life up with him. And in the early church, the early church that, we were talk- that we've been talking about these last few weeks, from Acts chapter 1 all the way through to where we're at today, Acts chapter 9, these guys just never stopped experiencing turnarounds. In Acts chapter 2, what does it say about them? It says that the church was growing daily. People were being added to their numbers daily. Daily, people were saying, I've been living my life wrong. I'm turning it around. I'm going to live my life for Christ. The early church was experiencing life transformation that was so radical. So many turnarounds were happening left and right. People being added to their numbers, deciding to to be followers of Christ. But they never could imagine They never saw it coming. It probably hit them like a freight train when one of their greatest persecutors, we know him now as the Apostle Paul, but one of their greatest persecutors all of a sudden had a radical turnaround. This guy sees this radical transformation in his life where he is bent on brutally killing, imprisoning, and destroying the church of Jesus Christ and every single believer he can get his hands on to a turnaround that causes him to become a Christ follower. He goes from a killer of Christ followers and surrenders and becomes a Christ follower himself. He becomes a Christian. Now, we were talking about Paul last week when we were dealing with Acts chapter 7. And there in Acts chapter 7, there you find this man by, by by the way, he goes by the name of Saul at this stage of his life. Saul is standing there and he is actually holding or guarding the clothes of the men who are stoning the very first martyr of Christianity after Jesus Christ. And his name was Stephen. And Saul was there and he was approving of this. He was so approving of it that once it was done, his whole mission in life was to go house to house and to destroy Christianity person by person, to gouge it right out of their hearts to scare it out of them, to put them in prison. And then later, because he was part of a council that judged um, these religious um, uh, you know, breaks of the law, that he would then come to all, all those that are in prison, that they would have their jury, he would sit there on it, and then he would say, kill him. That's how he got around it. That's how he got about it. If he didn't kill him on the spot, he threw him in jail, and he would come back later and vote for their, for their death. And that's exactly what happened for Stephen. They drug him out, and they they brutally killed him, Acts chapter 7. So from 7 all the way to 9, Paul is running around all over the place, you know, rooting out Christianity. And then all of a sudden he hears that 140 miles away, there are these Christians who have found their way now to this community called Damascus, and they are starting to thrive, and they're starting to grow, and their faith is starting to catch on, and it's starting to impact the region. And when Saul hears about this, he is furious. 
And at the beginning of Acts chapter 9, it says that he is, he's basically his blood is boiling with anger. He's breathing in and he's breathing out this rage against Christians. And all they can think about is their destruction and their death. And so he goes to the high priest and he says, I want to go root out Christianity in, in Damascus. And they basically write him a letter, give him everything he needs, and they send him on his way. And off he goes with his entourage. That's 140 miles. That takes some time, right? But his fire inside of him still burning bright after having to journey all of those days to get up there. Some of his, some of his guys are walking. Maybe some of them are riding. And it takes them a number of days. But as they start to crest over the mountain, down into the valley where Damascus would be, something miraculous takes place. And Saul says that he and all the men with him are knocked to the ground by this brilliant, bright light, and they all hear this voice. But only Saul, only he sees the one who's speaking. The one who's speaking to him is Jesus himself. And he basically says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting? Watch these words. Why are you persecuting me? Saul's going after all the Christians. He's going after all the people. He's routing out Christianity home by home. But when Jesus comes to him, he doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? He says to him, why are you persecuting me? You need to know today that Jesus takes his church very personal. Jesus sees his church. He sees you and him being bond together with a close bond. It's not you and then him, it's us. And I love that about Jesus. It's a great little takeaway out of that passage. Why are you persecuting me? And it, through that, Jesus gives him some instructions. And he says, now I want you to get up from here and I want you to go into Damascus and I want you to wait. Wait for a few days and I've got a mission. I've got something I'm gonna do in your life. And while he's waiting for those three days, God speaks to one of his disciples, Ananias, and he says to him, this is where you're going to find this man by the name of Saul. Go find him, and I want you to pray for him. And Ananias finds him, lays hands on him, and prays for him. And all of a sudden, Saul's eyes are opened. Because see, when, when the light of Christ spoke to him, it blinded his eyes, and, and he could no longer see. He was physically blind. And when Ananias prays for him, his eyes are opened up, and his sight is regained. And at that very moment, he gives his life to Christ, he says that he's filled with the Holy Spirit and then Ananias takes him out to the local river where they might be washing clothes or bathing and takes him out there in the midst of a public place and baptizes him into the faith of Jesus Christ. What a powerful moment. A man transformed from the beginning of this chapter as a raging man full of anger to kill every Christian he can find and now he's baptized into the faith. He himself has become a Christ follower. One thing I know today is this, that if a turnaround as dramatic as that can happen for a man by the name of Saul, God can see and God can work a turnaround in your life today. God's doing that. And today, what do you need turned around? Lifestyle? A habit? A belief? A sin issue? A relationship? A sickness? If you want to see a spiritual turnaround, if you want to experience a physical turnaround, if you want to experience a radical turnaround in your life, then it's first going to start with this essential truth. The block we're adding to the wall today 
The first one is you got to meet Jesus. I mean, let's take a look at Acts chapter 9. It says that he, being Saul, he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one that you are persecuting. You've got to meet Jesus. One thing we know about Saul in this encounter is that he came face to face with Jesus. He later writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that, you know, haven't I seen the Lord with my own eyes? He confesses of the fact that although all the other men with him, they don't see Jesus, they only hear his voice and they don't know who it is that's speaking. Saul here, he sees him. He has a personal encounter with the living God. And that, that starts the radical transformation. I want you to notice something, though, about Saul's life. Saul was a man who would have studied what we know now as the Old Testament. I mean, he would have studied it from birth. His father would have been a Pharisee. Saul was going to be a Pharisee, which is a spiritual or a religious leader. And so he had to go through all these classes. And he was diligent about it. And he studied them hard. He gave his life to it. I mean, Saul was the kind of student that every mom would want. Right? The kind that just puts their nose to the grind wheel and discovers what it is. If they find something that they don't know, they are a forever learner. They see something they don't know or they're asked a question that they can't answer. What does a guy like a Saul do? He goes back to the, to the word and he starts reading it and discovering what it, the truth is. He memorizes it. He puts it into his heart and he practices those words. He's a student of religion. He is a student of God and he is now a religious leader. But with all of that study, all of that study couldn't bring about a spiritual turnaround. He had to meet Jesus. Saul, he was a man of power and a man of authority. That when he said something, people did it. When he had an idea, he had such favor that people gave him the ability to go make it happen. Hey, I want to go root out Christianity in Damascus. Okay, what do you need? I need a letter from you, and I need some people, and I need some money and some resources. Okay. There you go. Get about the business. He's a man of power and authority, but I want you to notice something about his power and his authority. Even that couldn't bring about a turnaround. So Saul, he, he had everything he needed, according to our world. Education, power, and authority. But that couldn't bring a spiritual turnaround. You know this world that we live in, this self-help world where you know when, when we want to learn something, then we go to, where do you, if you want to learn about something, where do you go, by the way? Google. That's right. There you go. Uh, Google. Is Google a mister or a missus to you? Right? Because, I mean, it's almost like this personal relationship where you pull out your phone and you're like, Siri, tell me. Tell me everything you know about New Life Church, right? Beyond my abilities at the moment. It's way beyond our abilities. That's right. <laughs> I haven't paid her enough, evidently. <laughs> but yeah, you go to Google, because that's the world we live in. We live in a world of self-help. Like, I don't, I'm going to discover this on my own. Even I, I've gone to YouTube to fix my own Jeep. Like, how do I fix this part? part? I don't know how to fix it, right? And I, I just want to find it out myself. I don't want to have to call somebody. I just want to do it myself. And so I go to YouTube, and you get some guy who's on there, and you're like, seriously? You, you waste your time to tell people how to fix their mirror. All right, all right, that's very interesting. But thank you for the video. It's shaky, you know. He's, uh, he's just, it's crazy, but that's what we do, right? We live in this world 
We live in this world of self-help. Like, if I, if I can just figure it out myself, I'm going to do it. That's why we have all those books, Self-Help for Dummies. Anybody have any of those Self-Help for Dummies books? Nobody wants to raise their hand. Why? Because you have to, what? You have to admit that you're a dummy before you can buy one. I mean, they're so, they're so uplifting. They have books for everything. Look, they got books like this, Addiction and Recovery for Dummies. You've got, you got others, like Overcoming Anxiety for Dummies. That probably took a lot to even order that, if they were dealing with the anxiety, to even overcome that. Um, you got stress management, right, for dummies. There's, there's all kinds. You got another one here, strategic planning for dummies. I wonder how long it took them to even order that book. But you, got, you have all these books that are out there to try to self-help, right, to avoid what really needs to be done and just kind of like discover it on our own. And that, these are the serious ones. There's also the crazy ones. The crazy ones such as this one. Check this one out. Dog photography for dummies. I don't know about you, but have you ever taken a picture of your dog before? It always looks the same. Dogs don't smile. They don't frown. It's always the same. That's the look. Tongue out of the mouth. Everything's going on. You know what's happening on the inside? Like, after this, do I get a treat? That's all they're thinking about. That's all they're thinking about. But here's another one I found I thought you might be interested in. Self-dentistry for dummies. Now, now, seriously, you can't probably read the green fine print from there. Let me just read it for you. It says, you can learn how to fill in your own cavities. Yeah. Here's the scary part. Make extra money on the side. Don't, don't do it. If, if you go into your dentist's office and you see that book on the shelf, run. Run. No. This is not where you want to learn to be a dentist. Right? Even with all of that joking aside, though, there's even books like this one. You know, Christianity for Dummies. You could buy a book like that and read it over and over and over again. You can read even the Bible over and over and over again, but I'm telling you, unless you meet Jesus, there isn't going to be a turnaround. It's not just about the education. It's not just about the gaining of knowledge. It's not about owning the right books. It's not being able to say, I've read the Bible all the way through. It's about meeting Jesus. Now, Jesus will meet you in the word. Jesus will meet you in a worship service like this. But you can't come in here and just sing the songs and go through the motions and expect transformation. You have to come in and you have to do what? Meet Jesus. And the beauty is this, he's here to meet with you. That's what he wants to do. And every time people met with Jesus, their lives were transformed. Just look at three simple chapters, John chapter three, four, and five. John chapter three, Nicodemus, a religious leader, comes to him and wants to figure out who he is. And Jesus tells him, Nicodemus, you must be born again if you're gonna be part of God's kingdom. Nicodemus hears that message. His life is so transformed and changed by it that later he defends Jesus. And then when Jesus dies on the cross, Nicodemus is one of the guys who goes and takes the body of Jesus and prepares it for burial. That's a transformed man. Jesus transformed. He turned around his thinking. In John chapter 4, Jesus is on a journey and he's He's traveling, and it's a mid, midday heat, and he, so he stops at this well near the town of Sakar, and a woman comes out who's been married multiple times and has kids from multiple different, um, multiple different fathers. She's an outcast of her community. People laugh at her. They mock her. They don't let their kids play with her kids. That type of a story, that kind of a person in a small town, their name got around. Jesus meets with her and transforms. He turns around her image. 
She never sees herself the same again, nor does the community. The community doesn't ever see her the same. Her image is transformed, turned around. John, John chapter 5, Jesus He goes into Jerusalem to the pool of Bethesda. He walks up to it where maybe hundreds of people are gathered around it by when the waters are stirred or when the waters bubble. People thought the first person in would be healed. And a man who has been paralyzed since birth is sitting there and he can't get in to the waters. And Jesus walks up to him and he says, Sir, do you want to walk? Pick up your mat and walk again. And a man who's never walked stands to his feet. There's a great turnaround that day as a man's physical limitations are completely removed. I'm telling you that every time Jesus meets with people, people are turned around. So, what do you need turned around? Because whatever you need turned around, you've got to come and you've got to meet with Jesus. When Saul, Saul got knocked to the ground, Jesus met him and it was a light. Often Jesus says to himself, I am the light of the world. Today, you got to start with meeting Jesus. And that means coming to an altar like this or humbling yourself right where you're at today and stare into the light. We come to Jesus all too often talking to him. And I'm suggesting to you today, you come and just stare into the light. Jesus, what would you have with me today? What do you want to do in my life today? That's where a turnaround starts. You first have to meet with Jesus. The second one, second block we're dealing with, though, is this. You have to surrender your agenda. Your agenda has to be surrendered, and God's agenda has to be the one that you start to follow. Look at Acts. Acts chapter 22. Now, before I read this, one of the things you might find interesting about this this story that that Saul has with God, um, meeting him and knocking him to the ground, It's so profound that Saul has to turn around and share it multiple times. It's recorded here in chapter 22, but it's also recorded in chapter 26. It's a powerful moment. And what does that say to us? When you experience the power of God, it's worth telling multiple times over and over again. It might get old to you, but it's fresh to other people. And so here Saul is referring back to this encounter. And let's see what he has to say in regards to surrendering your agenda. Saul says, I asked, basically... What should I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told everything that you are to do. One of the things you need to know about a man like Saul is that he wasn't a man that was typically used to asking others what to do. He was his own boss in a lot of ways. He called the shots. I mean, if he wanted to go someplace, he went there. If he wanted to go to Damascus... He, he got the authority of the high priest. That's it. He went straight to the very, very top. And what do they do? They don't ask any questions. They just write it down. Yeah, man, go ahead and do it. Most of the time, a man like him, he would have been like a, like a business owner. Or he would have been the manager of a whole plant. He was the guy who called all the shots. And if you're that person, you know what it's like then to have to turn around and ask for someone's authority now to go do something. You know that it's not something that comes natural when you're the one who has to make all the decisions all the time. But that's exactly where Saul finds himself. What are the words he has to say to the Lord? What should I do? I guarantee you that was not a question that typically rolled off of his lips. Very confident, secure individual. To ask someone else, what should I do? That's not going to be natural for him. But that's what's required if you really want to surrender your agenda to God's agenda. You're going to have to do a few things. There's no surrender, by the way, 
without asking for God's direction. If you think you know where you're supposed to go, that's not surrender. Surrender starts by asking God's direction. And that's what Saul starts here. But there also is no surrender until you can admit, I don't know what the next step is that needs to be taken. So not only is it, I don't know what direction to go, but I don't even know what the very next detail is that I need to do. And there's no surrender to God until you come to a place where you're so broken that you can admit, I don't know the next step that I need to take. I could easily be stepping in the wrong direction, causing more pain and more destruction. God, I need to surrender. But you also need to know today that there's no surrender until the name of Jesus becomes something greater than a name. Until the name of Jesus becomes, what word did Paul use? Lord. There's no surrender until Jesus becomes leader and Lord. Until you're able to admit, you are my master, I'm the slave. You are my authority, and I don't do anything until I come to you. It can't just be a good name. It can't just be a good name that you say that you know about. His name is Jesus, and he has to become Lord to you and me. And when he becomes Lord, something radical begins to happen inside of your heart. Your love for him starts driving you to fulfill his agenda versus your agenda. How many of you guys have ever read the book called The Five Love Languages? Anybody ever read that? If you haven't read it, great book for your marriage. Okay, I would highly recommend it. Get the book. The principle is this, that, that there are five basic love languages um, in humanity. All of us have one of them. And when people do this thing, then it really speaks love to us like a, like a booming sound. It speaks love. Such as, an example, some of you are words of affection. And when, when your spouse speaks those words of affection to you, you really know. I mean, that's your love language. When they build you up with those words, when they tell you how beautiful you are, when they can detail it out, not just about the hair, but it's the dress. And I mean, it's the whole thing. Like, you look sharp. It's like, man, this is, you look like the day we met. You know? And you mean it from your heart. You're not trying to schmooze. Others of you, you know, you've got, uh, you've got this physical touch. It's, you know, sitting in church and your spouse reaches over and takes your hand. And that this, it's the security inside of you that says, man, I know that I'm loved. Others of you, it's acts of service. I mean, you come in, you come in uh, to the house and, uh, you know, your spouse turns to you and says, hey, by the way, the, I cleaned the bathroom today. And it, look, it's amazing. And inside of you, you go, Ooh, I am loved, right? That's one of mine, by the way. Okay, just so you... Just in case you didn't know. It, it, you also might start singing it, just in case. I just want to make sure you're aware of that. Um, others of you are receiving gifts. Not outlandish gifts. It's just gifts. It's I was at the store, and I was grocery shopping, and I saw this thing, and it reminded me of you, and I got it for you. It was 33 cents. But it melts your heart, right? Because that's what speaks love. Or quality time. Just spending time with you. So, you got to think about which one of those is yours. Because here's what happens all too often. We live life showing love to others based on how we receive love. But if you want to learn what it means to surrender your agenda to God, then you're going to have to meet him on his terms. If you want to have a healthy marriage, you need to love your spouse really on their terms. What is their love language? You meet them there, man, that's where you're going to find real love. 
That's where you're going to find real affection. That's where you're going to find the fire of the relationship is really going to take off. Is when you meet someone on their agenda of love and not always on yours. And that's what it means here. To surrender your agenda is to surrender your concept, your independence, right? Your dreams and your desires and to say, God, I'm going to take on your dreams and your desires. I'm going to truly follow you more than I'm going to follow anything else. You got to surrender your, your agenda to God. Now, when you do that, that means literally you have to stop fighting. We fight for our rights. We fight for our idea. We, we fight for what makes us feel good. We fight for that. And it's useless. Listen to what God says to Paul here as he continues this journey with him. He says that we all fell down and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is what? Useless for you to fight against my will. Useless. You can live for your own agenda, but I'm telling you, in the end, it's useless. Proverbs 14, 12, it tells us that there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. You can follow your own agenda, but it's useless. You can fight to get your way, but it's useless. Telling you today, if you really want to see a spiritual turnaround, then you have to surrender your agenda. You have to stop fighting. You have to start letting God have his way. So what does God do for us? What does he model in Saul's life of what it means to demobilize him and to cause him to stop fighting? He knocks him to the ground. So what would be a great suggestion if you want to surrender your will? Kneel your, yourself to the ground. Put your knees on the ground of this earth and look up to God and basically say to him, what do you want me to do, Lord? I'm going to surrender. What do you want me to do? That's not something you just do once. That's a lifestyle. That's not something that Saul just did that one day when God humbled him. That was something I guarantee you Saul came back to day after day, moment after moment, and he would humble himself, drop his knees physically to the ground, and say, what do you want me to do, Lord? Never forget that question. That's essential truth number two. But essential truth number three today, if you want to experience a spiritual turnaround, is this. You need the help of others. And God sent a man by the name of Ananias to help Saul out in his moment of need. When God was working in his heart and creating this turnaround, God used others to be a part of it. Take a look at what it says in Acts chapter 9. It says, so Ananias went and he found Saul. He laid his hands on him and he said these words. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the, on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. If Saul didn't obey Jesus and let his friends help him while he was blind go into Damascus, Saul would have never have found the people that he needed to complete this turnaround. And for some of us, we're, we're lacking that one act of obedience to humble ourselves, to let others come into our lives, to really help us complete this spiritual turnaround that God's doing in us. God wants to use others in the process. 
And Saul needed Ananias more than he thought. Saul knew he needed his eyes, physical eyes, open back up. But I guarantee you Saul didn't comprehend and or understand how bad he needed the Holy Spirit, of which he got when they were praying. And I know that Saul probably didn't comprehend and or grasp completely that he was going to need to be baptized to make that public proclamation that Jesus is his Lord and his leader. But Ananias knew it, and Ananias helped him in that process. And because Saul allowed Ananias to help him, Saul gained more than he ever thought. And that's what God wants to do in you. But you got to look for the right people. you got to pull the right people around you. I think too often we pull the wrong people around. We pull people around that will just build us up. They don't see anything wrong with us. They only encourage us by, and, and allow us to live in the filth of our own lives. That's not the kind of people you want around you. They feel good for a season, but they're not great for a lifetime. So out of this passage, what can we glean from a man like Ananias? What kind of man, what kind of people should we look like? Or what kind of people should we attract or gain or bring onto our team? You need people, you need people who will hear God's voice. That's the first thing. Bring people onto your team that actually hear God's voice. Take a look at what it says about Ananias. It says that in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. What does he say? Yes, Lord. That's the kind of people you want. You want people that are seeking God and that God's speaking to them. You want to bring those kind of people around you. And when you find people like that, you want to go to them and you want to say to them, here's an area of my life that needs to be turned around. What do you sense? What do you see? How can you pray with me? How can you be a part of it? When you've got people in your life that actually are people that hear the Lord, they know God and they make him known, you can find hopefully a safe person there. You need to look at other components, obviously, their integrity and their character and those kind of things. But you find someone like that, you've got a gold mine. By the way, that's the kind of person you should be striving to be as well. Somebody that's hearing God's voice. Because God wants you to play on someone else's team as well. But the other attribute that I see here is that Ananias was not a man who caved to fear. Well, and he had a lot of things to be afraid of. Let's take a listen to this. Ananias is praying after God says you know, to him that this is what he wants him to do. And Ananias says, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things that Saul has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. He can arrest him. He can throw him in jail. He's heard about you know, the people that he's put to death in Jerusalem. And now he's here with the supreme authority. And he's saying these things back to him. He has a lot of things to be afraid of. But the Lord says to him, what? Go. And you know what Ananias does? He goes. That's the kind of people you want in your life. You want people that, I mean, I know all of us in different ways can be a little intimidating. You know, we are overconfident at times, and so people just think, I'll never be able to speak any truth to them, right? Or you're so defensive every time people deal with things that people don't, they don't, they no longer want to deal with things in your life. Or you get angry so quick, or whatever it is. You need people in your life, like I need people in my life, that are willing to tell me the things that hurt at times so that I can change and I can become the man God wants me to be. And that's the kind of people you need in your life. We need real people. People don't just, you know, 
pump us up. We need people that sometimes tear us down to rebuild us. We need people that point out our flaws so that we can become stronger. We need people that aren't afraid, but we need to know that those people are what? Hearing from God. So look for those kind of people. When you find them, those are the kind of folks you want to share with them, the turnaround that you've got, that you need in your life, and to have them pray with you, join with you on the journey. Well, in wrapping this up, I think it's obvious that Saul saw a, ma- a massive turnaround in his life. But when he experienced this turnaround, he did something with it. That's something you've got to hang on to. If you've experienced a turnaround in your life, Jesus has done something radical in your life. You need to do something with it and do something immediately. Take a look at what he does. In Acts chapter 9, verse 20, and then jumping to 22, it says that at once, Saul, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. At once. He was just going into the synagogues to find people who were doing that, dragging them out into the street and beating them and putting them in jail and stoning them to death. And what does he do? At once, he starts acting out the turnaround that God's done in his life. I think that's fantastic. And in verse 22, it says that Saul grew more and more powerful, and it baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Wow. That's what a spiritual turnaround should should do in your life. If God's got a hold of your life, you should be proving to the world that Jesus is alive. And if that's not happening, you need to go back to the turnaround moment, drop down to your knees and say, I surrender to your agenda. Because of God-centered, Christ-centered, God-empowered turnaround, can't help but proclaim the good news to the world. So have you really been turned around? Have you experienced a turnaround? Part of the evidence is you're proving to the world that Jesus is alive. That's just part of it. I mean, look, you were once an addict, now you're free. Tell the world about it. You were once diagnosed with sickness, and now you're healed. Tell the world about it. Right? You were once living in sin, but now you've been set free. Tell the world about it. You were once bound by religion, but now you can see and you're set free. Tell the world about it. Jesus is turning people around, person by person, situation by situation. But he's looking for people that are hungry enough to meet him. He's looking for people that are hungry enough to surrender their agenda. And when you find people like that, God sends others around you to help you continue that transformation. And today at New Life, in all of our venues, in just a moment, our worship teams are going to come. And when they do, as they sing, our altars are a place for the hungry to come. They're for hungry people who want a turnaround in their life. For all kinds of reasons. And there are vast reasons why people want to turn around from thinking one way and living one way to now thinking and living for Christ. When you come to an altar like these, come expecting to meet Jesus. but Come ready to surrender. And when you do, I guarantee you that new life is the type of church that you don't get left alone. That people come around and they rally with you to help you experience the complete turnaround that God wants to do in your life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Why don't you stand with me? Father, we thank you today that just like you transformed Saul's life, you're continuing to transform our lives. That Lord, if you did such an amazing work in his heart, you can do amazing things in our heart. And Lord, it all starts with us meeting with you face to face. And today, Lord, in this auditorium, 
and in, uh, in down in the venue and out in North Platte. As we meet with you, God, may we experience the true power of Christ manifest in our midst. May our eyes be open as we gaze into the light of Christ. May our hearts be transformed by that. May you find hungry people, God, willing to surrender their agenda, surrender their identity, so that you might have your way in us. That your agenda would be what we live for. Your ways would be what we we strive for. That, Lord, through that, would you continue to use this church to rally around people in the midst of their turnaround, that we would love them right where they're at. We love them enough not to leave them there. That's what you did with Paul, and that's what you're doing with us today. You love us right where we're at, but you're not content with that. You want us to turn around today and walk in the way of truth. May we be those people in your sight as we worship you today. In Jesus' name, amen.